0: So tomorrow I have my first test of 12th grade and it's about chemical kinetics. So I'm just gonna try to sum up the chapter and like see how much I know because that's fun. So chemical kinetics. To start off with, when we talk chemistry, thermodynamics tells us whether or not a reaction happens. Equilibrium, chemical equilibrium tells us to what extent the reaction will occur. But neither of these two tell us about the speed or the rate of the reaction. All that we get from chemical kinetics. Using chemical kinetics, we can predict the rate of the reaction, the mechanism and the factors that affect the rate of the reaction. Now, to start off with, The factors which affect the rates of the reaction are the nature of the reactants, the presence of a catalyst, temperature, intensity of the radiation absorbed, if it's photochemical, and the surface area of the catalyst. Now, how do these work together? Nature of the reactants. If we have ionic reactions, just because it's just the moving around of electrons, it happens really, really fast. We don't see any making or breaking of bonds. But then if we look at um, things like the rusting of iron, they're very, very slow reactions. And apart from this, there are just a bunch of moderate reactions, like the decomposition of hydrogen peroxide. Now, in the presence of catalysts, catalysts basically increase the rate of the reaction. They speed it up without actually affecting how it goes on. Then we have the temperature. The higher the temperature, the greater the rate of reaction is because everything's moving around a lot more. The thermal energy becomes kinetic energy, and now everybody's super excited to move around and get things done. After this, the intensity of radiation absorbed. Again, it absorbs energy, so the kinetic energy of each of the molecules goes up, and boom! You see the reaction happening faster. And finally, the surface area of the catalyst. is directly proportional to the rate of the reaction. Now, what is the rate of the reaction in the first place? When we talk about speed it's the distance traveled per unit time the rate of change of position we look at acceleration it's the rate of change of speed or velocity in that matter Um, so it's basically the change in anything divided by the time taken so just like that when we talk the rate of reaction We are talking about the change in concentration of either the reactant or the product divided by the total time taken. So if it's a change in concentration divided by the time, the the, the SI unit for uh, concentration would be moles per liter, right? So if you take this as a rate, the change of concentration per unit time, then we get moles per liter per second. And because a liter is one decameter, moles per decameter cubed per second. One liter is a decameter cube, sorry. And then for gas phase reactions, we don't always have to consider just the concentration, we can consider the partial pressure too. Then we just replace moles per liter with um, a unit for pressure. Now, the types of reaction rates. Here we have the average rate and the instantaneous rate. The average rate is when we consider um, the total change in the concentration of the reactant or product to the total time taken for that change. Right, so basically, if we are taking um, a curve, right, let's say we have um, a concentration versus time graph, and this is a curve, right, so we're just finding two points on that curve and finding the difference and dividing it by the total time that was taken, right, but then when we go for instantaneous rate of reaction. We're just looking for the rate at one particular point of time. We're not interested in how it was in the beginning or how it was in the end, but we're just looking at that one point that we have considered the change um, in the concentration of the reactor in a product then. So for this, we consider a very, very, very small time interval, right? So if we take the same graph and we're looking at instantaneous rate, we basically take the slope of that graph. Following this, we come to the rate expression for a chemical reaction. Now when we look for the overall rate, say we have um, some reaction A moles of P plus B moles of Q, giving us C moles of D, I mean C moles of X and D moles of Y, I'm sorry, right? So if we have to look for the rate here, we basically multiply the change in the concentration of each reactant or each product by the inverse of the stoichiometric coefficient, the SC, right? So if I had to find the overall rate of the reaction, then I'd say minus 1 by A, the inverse of A, times um, dP divided by dt. And why is it that I've said minus 1 by A for the reactant? I've said this because as the reaction progresses, the concentration of the reactant goes down because this reactant is being converted into your product so whenever we consider the rate expression, we always make sure that the reactants have a negative. The inverse of their stoichiometric coefficient has a negative. So back to the rate, it would be minus one by A times dP by dt is equal to minus one by B times dQ by dt, which is equal to plus one by C because here the rate is increasing for the products, not the rate, the concentration, sorry, is increasing for the product. So plus one by C times dx by dt, which is equal to plus one by D, dy by dt right? So this is the rate for like the overall reaction. If I had to consider the overall reaction, you're like, hey, Namita, what's the rate for this full reaction? This is what I'd have to find. I could either um, try solving minus 1 by A times dP by dt, or I could just solve plus 1 by d dy by dt. I'd get the same answer in both situations, and that would be the rate of the overall reaction. But then say I had to figure out what the rate of appearance of p was i mean i'm sorry the rate of appearance of x was or the rate of disappearance of p was because p is the reactant x is the product remember in this case would I use the inverse of the stoichiometry coefficient? Would I multiply it by the inverse of the stoichiometry coefficient? No, because when I have to figure out the rate of disappearance or rate of appearance of an individual reactant or an individual product, I do not multiply by the inverse of the stoichiometry coefficient. That's only for the full reaction. After this, we come to the law of mass action. So this is basically a theoretical explanation to the rate law which we'll learn next. So this is basically like the base for what's coming up. So the law of mass action tells us that the rate of a chemical reaction at a particular temperature is directly proportional to the product of the active masses of reactants raised to the power of their stoichiometric coefficients. So say I had the reaction um, A moles of X plus B moles of Y giving me a product. So now the rate would be proportional to the concentration of X to the power of A times the concentration of X to the power of B, right? And because it's proportional, and in science we don't like having just the proportionalities, we like having equations, we multiply the RHS by some constant K. This K is what we're going to be referring to as the K- rate constant, I'm sorry, the rate constant throughout, right? So now, according to the law of mass action, the rate is equal to k times x to the power a times y to the power b, right? So here a and b are the stoichiometric coefficients. It's part of the reaction that we've been given. Now from this, we come to the rate expression, or the rate law. In this case, we apply the same logic, but instead of raising it to the power of the stoichiometric coefficient, we're raising it to the power of some number, some numbers that have been determined experimentally, right? So these are numbers that we're going to be given. We don't need to find it. We're going to be given these numbers. So in this case, the rate would be k times x to the power of p times y to the power of q. Now, P and Q don't necessarily have to be equal to A and B, which were the stoichiometric coefficients. That's only when we consider the law of mass action, and that's theoretical. When we come to the practical side of this, we need to determine the the what do you call it? The the exponents to which we're raising all the concentrations of the power to, We need to determine that experimentally. Right? So k like i said is the rate constant it's the rate of the reaction when the concentration of each reactant is one molar and now we come to the order of a chemical reaction the order of a chemical reaction is basically telling us how the rate is dependent on the concentration of everything that we have so this time let's change it up let's say we have a moles of a plus b moles of b and c moles of c giving us a product so now according to the rate law remember where um The coefficients don't always have to be equal to the the power to which we raise it the rate law would be that r is equal to where r is the rate r is equal to k times a to the power a b to the power b c to the power c now the overall order would be the sum of the powers of the concentration terms a plus b plus c now if we had to find the order with respect to a only it would be a with respect to b it would be b with respect to c it would be c Now what are the characteristics of the order of any reaction? Number one, the order of the reaction has to be determined experimentally. Number two, it can be a fraction. And number three, the order can either be positive or negative. So now we have zero, first, second, third, and fractional order reactions. A zero order reaction like the name says, is when the order or the sum of the exponents of the rate law are all zero. So in this case, the rate law is telling us that because the order is zero, the rate is independent of concentration. So no matter how much concentration of each element that we'll be taking, the end product does not depend on it at all. After this, we come to the first order reaction. So here the rate is directly proportional to the concentration of the reactants. Then the second order reaction is directly proportional to the square of the reactants, and then third order reactions directly proportional to the cube, and fractional directly proportional to whatever fractional power of the thing. Now one thing we have to remember is that the rate law that we're just talking about, where the exponents are not always equal to the stoichiometric coefficients, this is only, only, only for the reactants. We cannot use intermediates, we cannot use products in it. Anything we represent, we just use the reactants. Following this, we come to pseudo-first-order reactions. So, this is basically when we have a reaction of a higher order, but it's made to become a first order reaction either by increasing or decreasing the concentration of one or more reactants. Let's consider the hydrolysis of an ester for this, right? Um, CH3COO C2H5 plus H2O in the presence of an acid gives us CH3COOH plus C2H5OH. So, say at the very beginning when T is equal to zero, We have 10 mils of water and 0.0001 mils of um, our ester, right? So now at some point T, we've used up all the ester. So now the concentration of the ester is zero. But the concentration of the water is 9.999. This is approximately equal to 10 which is the same amount that we started with. So the concentration of water in this case is almost constant. So in this case, what we're seeing is that if any reactant is taken in a larger amount, the order with respect to that reactant is zero because it's almost constant. So in this case, the rate which would have originally been K times the uh, concentration of ester to the power of one times the concentration of H2O to the power of one, it becomes H2O to the power of zero because there's almost no change in the concentration. So in this case, the rate just becomes K times CH3COOC2H5 to the power of 1, which makes it a pseudo-first-order reaction. Now for the units of the rate constant, if um, A is a to the products is any nth-order reaction, then K would be equal to moles per liter to the power of 1 minus n per second. This is something that we need to remember. This can help us determine the order of a reaction as well as the units of K when we need to. And when we consider the board exam point of view, we need to make sure that we have proper units for everything. Now let's move on to elementary reactions. Elementary reactions, or well, let's start with this. Reactions are classified into two main types. Elementary reactions and complex reactions. Now, the elementary reactions are the little baby ones that can easily be completed in just one step. But then the complex reactions are the reactions which require a lot more than one step to complete. Right? So let's start with the elementary ones, the ones that can be completed in one step. Here we consider molecularity. This is basically the number of reacting species, which are, which can basically be our atoms, or ions, or molecules that are taking part in a chemical reaction, which must collide simultaneously in order to bring about a chemical reaction. Unless they collide, you don't get your product. And it's not like just any two random things can bump into each other and voila, we have a product. No, they need to be effective collisions, which I'll be talking about later. Now. For elementary reactions only, the molecularity is equal to the order which is equal to the sum of the stoichiometric coefficients. Now remember, the sum of the stoichiometric coefficients is basically. The sum of the powers when we use the law of mass action, the one that was supposed to be theoretical, right? And in this case, it's equal to the order, which was determined experimentally. So in this case, the molecularity, number of molecules reacting, is equal to the order, which is equal to the sum of the stoichiometric coefficients. This is only for elementary reactions. I cannot stress this enough. Now the probability that more than three molecules can simultaneously collide to bring chemical reactions is rare So we only just consider molecularity up to two or three Right if it's just one unimolecular two bimolecular three trimolecular After this we come to complex reactions. These are the reactions like I said, which require more than one step to complete So in this case, let's consider a plus b giving us an intermediate c which then gets converted to the final product now in this case The slowest step in the reaction is going to be our rate determining step. So it's basically like this. You have a factory that's manufacturing bicycles, right? We have three divisions. The one that's in charge of the painting, the one that's in charge of the metal body, and the one that's in charge of the... Okay, I think I just lost my train of thought. Where was I? Yeah, the bicycle factory where we have three divisions, one that manufactures the body, one that paints, and then one that makes the tires, right? So say our first two divisions, the painters and the metal body guys, they are super duper fast, right? But then these tire guys, they are so slow, right? So at the end of the day, the number of cycles that are made, they depend on the output of the slowest guys. Right? So just like that, the slowest step in the complex reaction is the rate-determining step. Depending on how slow the slowest step is, we can determine um, the molecularity and the number of stuff, species involved. Now let's consider the decomposition of hydrogen peroxide. 2H2O2 in an alkaline medium gives us 2H2O plus O2. Now for the mechanism. The mechanism is basically into how many smaller steps the huge reaction is broken down into. The first one is H2O2 plus I minus gives us H2O plus I O minus. Oh, and I minus is a catalyst, I forgot to say that. And then the second one would be H2O2 plus I O minus giving us H2O plus I minus plus O2. Now, the slow step is the first one, H2O2 plus I minus giving us H2O plus I2. Now, the molecularity of a complex reaction is equal to the number of species that are involved in the rate determining step. So here, the slowest step is H2O2 plus I minus giving us H2O plus I O minus, right? So because this is the slowest step, we'll consider the molecularity of the whole reaction be equal to the number of reacting species involved in this case. So here we have H2O2 and I minus. So we have two reacting species. This gives us that the molecularity is 2 and the order is also 2. But remember, according to the rate law, the coefficient is not equal to the power all the time, so the order is not always equal to the molecularity, just in this case. Now order versus molecularity. How do we tell the difference in general? The order is the sum of the powers of the concentration terms in the rate law. And the molecularity is the number of molecules involved in simultaneous collisions. The order is determined experimentally. Molecularity is determined theoretically. The order is derived from the rate equation. The molecularity is derived from the reaction mechanism. The order depends on pressure and temperature. Molecularity is independent of pressure and temperature. The order may be fractional. But the molecularity is always a whole number and with that we come to the end of the first part of chemical kinetics i don't want this to be too long but yeah we made it up till here the next one i will probably take up the integrated rate equation that's supposed to be like a super duper important part so Last time I stopped, um, just before the integrated rate equation, that's what I'm supposed to be starting, so I'll just get right to it. So, so far, all that we've talked about is just the differential rate equation. We've talked about how um, the rate is equal to the inverse of the stoichiometric coefficient times the rate and change of the concentration of the individual element, and how that is also equal to k times, which is the react uh, the rate constant, k times the concentration of the reactants to the power of their stoichiometric coefficients. We've talked about all that. That's that was all a part of the whole differential rate equation part of the chapter. Now, that is not always precise. Sometimes we need to split things into really small pieces and then put them together as a whole to get a more accurate picture of what's going on. Right. So. Yeah, differential rate equations are not always convenient to determine the instantaneous rate, right? Because it's measured by the determination of the slope, right? So instead, what we do is we just go for an integrated rate equation. Now, the first thing that we see when we learn about the integrated rate equation is just like a bunch of these derivations for the integrated rate equation for the zero-order reaction, that for first-order reaction. And yeah, just those two, never mind, not many (laughs) derivations. So yeah, in all of them, what we're doing is um, we're taking a rudimentary reaction, R being converted to P. And then we're stating that it's either a zero-order reaction or a first-order reaction, depending on what we have to derive, right? So case one, when it's a zero-order reaction. Um, at t is equal to zero, we have the concentrations are not in zero of the reactants and products respectively, and then at a time t is equal to t, the um, what you call it, the concentration of the reactant R is equal to R, and that of P is equal to P. Right, so we know that negative dr by dt is equal to k naught times r to the power of zero because this is supposed to be a zero order reaction, so we're going to take the concentration of r to the power of zero. If it was a first order reaction, we would have taken it to the power of one. After this, we just move the dt from below dr to the RHS, and then we integrate it um, with limits. The limits for the reactant would be r naught to r because that's how... Those are the points on the y-axis that we're taking when we plot R with respect to time. And then for the time, we take it from a time 0 to a time T. And after this, is just basic math until we get that the rate constant for a zero-order reaction, k naught, is equal to R0 minus R divided by T, where R0 is the initial concentration, and R is the concentration after a time T. Now, let's say instead, um, to make it a lot easier for us, because. R0 and R, sometimes they can get a bit confusing. Let's say we started with a a concentration A for R and a concentration of 0 for P because it hasn't been formed yet, right? At a time T is equal to T, A would have lost an X amount of reactant and that X amount of reactant would have been used to make an X concentration of P, right? So R0 is equal to A and R like the the concentration after a time t is a minus x. So if we plug in these values of R naught and R into the equation that we just derived, we get that K naught is equal to x divided by t, where x is the amount of, the concentration rather, of the reactant that was reactant. Now, if we had to plot this graphically, we would shuffle everything around and get it in the form of the equation, the concentration of, the concentration, r, which is basically concentration of r after time t, is equal to negative k0 t plus the initial concentration. So this would be in the form of y is equal to minus mx plus c. And in this case, the slope is minus k0, and the intercept would be r0. Following this, we come to the first order reaction, and we do everything like before. Like I said, um, negative dr by dt is equal to k1, the rate constant for a first order reaction, times r to the power of 1. And in this case, because the concentration of R can be equated to 1 like it was before, um, we move the concentration of R below dr because we need to keep the like terms together and we move dt all the way up to k1 so after this we end up with dr divided by r times k1 times dt so now we just integrate both sides again with the same limits and we end up with k1 is equal to 2.303 divided by t times log to the base 10 r naught divided by r now again say um, the initial concentration was a um, the initial concentration of the reactant was a and then after time t became a minus x now we just plug these values back in. We get K1 is equal to 2.303 by T times log A divided by A minus X. And when I say log, it's log to the base 10. So if we had to put this in the exponential form, you know, before we get to the graphical representation, um, K1T is equal to log base E, natural logarithm, R0 by R, and we end up with the concentration of. Um, the reactant after time t, r is equal to r-naught times e to the power of minus k1t. Now for the graphical representation, we take the old, nice, warm, earthy form, k1 is equal to 2.303 by t log r-naught by r. We flip it around, we eventually get log r is equal to minus k1 divided by 2.303 plus log r-naught. So again, this is in the form of y is equal to minus mx plus c, and, but in this case, the slope is minus k1 divided by 2.303, and the intercept is log r naught. Now, there's another way of showing this reaction, and that would be if we took log r naught by r on the y-axis instead of just log r, and that being equal to k1t divided by 2.303. This is in the form of y equals mx. So this would be a straight line passing through the origin, where the slope is k1 by 2.303. Now, if we had um, different time intervals, right? We have two different concentrations. It's no longer 0 and r, right? Now in this case, we take the limits to be R1 to R2. We don't take R0 to R2 anymore. It's R1 to R2, and we do the whole thing again. So we end up getting K0 is equal to R1 minus R2 divided by T1 minus T2. And for the first order reaction, it would be K1 is equal to 2.303 divided by T2 minus T1 log R1 by R2. After this, we come to the experimental determination of the rate constant of acid hydrolysis of an ester. Let me repeat the experimental determination of the rate constant of acid hydrolysis of an ester you know just saying this makes me feel smart because it's like such a mouthful and like i'm gonna be learning all this and like actually writing this in tomorrow's test it's crazy okay so the reaction is ch 3 C 2 h 5 our ester plus h2o in the presence of hcl our catalyst giving us ch3cooh plus c2h5oh so here the reaction rate is measured by titrating the reaction mixture with NaOH. So here we're going to be taking like a few time intervals. The the main divisions in terms of time intervals would be at t is equal to 0, t is equal to t, and at t is equal to some super long time, infinity. When t is equal to 0, the reaction hasn't begun. The concentration of the ester would be A, and that of the um, acid and the alcohol would be 0. But after a time t, a loses x. x concentration of a is reacted, to give us x amount. Um, the concentrations of the products as x. So we get a minus x for the reactant concentration at a time t. Now at a time infinity. The reaction is done. We have no more reactant left, but now the products are now they now have the initial concentration of the reactant. We started with a moles of the reactant. After the full reaction, because mass is conserved, we have a moles of the product. So let's say that at a time t naught, the volume of NaOH we used for titration was V naught. At t is equal to t one, we used V t one. At T is equal to T2, the volume of NaOH was VT2 at a time infinity, it was V infinity, right? Here, the ester and the alcohol that we get, the products, they don't react with NaOH. It's just the amount of HCl. So at T is equal to T0, V0, which was the amount of NaOH we're using to titrate, um, that was directly proportional to the amount of HCl. But after this, at T is equal to some time T, Vt was directly proportional to the amount of HCl, which was V0 that we started with because that doesn't get consumed. It just helps speed up the reaction. So V0 plus the amount of CH3COOH. Remember the acid that's being formed? X. So X is equal... If the volume at a time T is equal to V0 plus X because we needed this much NaOH to um, work with the HCl that we put in as a catalyst, as well as the CH3COOH, the acid that's being produced as the product of the reaction, we would get VT is equal to V0 plus X, and from this we get that X is equal to VT minus V0. Now at a time T is equal to infinity, right, here the volume at infinity, that we've used is directly proportional to the amount of HCl and the total amount of CH3COOH, basically the amount of acid that's been produced. At infinity, um, all the ester has been used up and now we started with A moles of HCl or A mils of, um, I'm sorry, not HCl, A mils of the ester. Now after the full reaction, we end up with A mils of CH3COOH, right? So here, the volume of NaOH used at infinity is equal to the amount of HCl, V naught, plus a, the amount of CH3COOH. So we move everything around again, we get A is equal to V infinity minus V naught. Now the hydrolysis of an ester follows a first-order reaction. So we get K is equal to 2.303 divided by T log A divided by A minus X. And on plugging in these values of A and X, we get K is equal to 2.303 divided by T log V infinity minus V naught divided by V infinity minus V at a time T. So it's 2.303 divided by T log the volume of NaOH used at infinity minus the original volume of NaOH divided by V infinity minus Vt. Now we move on to the rate constant for a first-order gas phase reaction. Now, in this case, there are a few things that we need to do. So the type of questions that we get is um, some for some gaseous first order reaction at 500 millimeters of Hg, the total pressure of a system after 20 minutes is 700 millimeters of Hg. What is the value of K or something like that? So in this case, the first thing that we do is find the pressure at T is equal to zero. We find the initial pressure, right? And then we find the pressure at a time T equals T, right? So this would be Pt. Now P total, the total pressure of the total reaction, would be the sum of all pressures. P naught is the initial pressure of the reactant. Pt is the pressure of the reactant at a time t, right? And P total at the time t is the sum of all pressures. So our, um, for a first-order reaction, our whole thing was k is equal to 2.303 by t log a divided by a minus x so for pressures we start with the pressure p naught and at a time t we don't have a minus x we have pt right so this pt is essentially our a minus x right this is x is the amount of pressure that's been lost and this pressure has been gained by the products. So to find that value of x, we go for a p total at the time t is equal to the sum of all pressures. So we use it to find x, which is the moles dissociated. And then we plug the value of x back into the first equation that we started with, 2.303 by t log p naught by pt equals k, and we get our answer. It's all just that. After this, we come to the half-life of a reaction, denoted by T half or T 50. This is the time required to consume half of the initial concentration of the reactant. So basically when T is equal to T half, R, which is the concentration of the reactant at time T is equal to R not divided by two. Now the half life for a zero order reaction. We know that K is equal to R not minus R divided by T. Here in this case, t is equal to t half and r is equal to r naught by two. So we plug it into the equation and we and we end up getting t half is equal to r naught divided by 2k. Then we come to the half-life for the first order reactions, k is equal to 2.303 log r naught by r. In this case, r naught is equal to, I mean r is equal to r naught by two. So we end up getting k is equal to 2.303 divided by t log two. Um, and at the end of the day, t half is equal to 0.693 divided by k. The half life for an nth order reaction is different. How? T half is equal to 2 times, I'm sorry, 2 to the power n minus 1 minus 1 divided by n minus 1 times k times a to the power of n minus 1, where a is the initial concentration of the reactant. In this case, n cannot be 0 because for the first order reaction, it's really weird and it's completely different. Now, for the determination of the reaction by the half-life method, from what I just told you, we can say that t half is inversely proportional to a to the power of n minus 1. So we use that to determine um, the reaction order of anything by the half-life method. Following this, we're near the end we are now going to be talking about the effect of temperature on the rate of a reaction. As the temperature increases, the rate of the reaction also increases. Basically for every 10 degrees Celsius or 10 Kelvin rise in temperature, the rate of the reaction, it doubles, right? So here we consider our temperature coefficient. The ratio of, it's basically the ratio of the rate constant at a temperature T plus 10 to the constant at a time T. Now we already know that when T becomes T plus 10 it becomes the rate of the reaction doubles right so mu which is our temperature coefficient is equal to K um, of T plus 10 divided by K at a temperature T so here we get that mu is nearly equal to 2 and in this case k2 divided by k1 is mu to the power of t2 minus t1 divided by 10. now we come to the energy profile diagram for a single step reaction right so here, some important points that we need to remember are the threshold energy et activation energy ea The threshold energy is the minimum energy that everything must, must, must possess to react. And the activation energy is like that little boost. Like, you have to achieve something, but you're not quite there. You getting there is like... Okay, that was a very bad example. Okay, I think I thought of a better one. I don't know if it's better, though. My analogies are terrible. So it's like this. Um... Say you have to make it to the top of a mountain to go sledding down, right? Now, you can make it up to, I don't know, half the mountain by yourself. This is your, it's the energy that you possess, right? So using the energy that you possess, you've made it halfway through. But you need to make it to the top. Unless you make it to the top, you can't go sledding down. You can't start making products, right? So... Now, you need someone to give you that extra push, that extra bit of encouragement. That extra bit of encouragement is our activation energy. It's the excess energy above the normal energy that the reacting molecules must possess in order to react. So with that extra push, you make it to the top and then from there, you go all the way down. Sledding, basically, How amazing. So yeah, that's about it. Now, yes, if the reactants have a greater energy than their products, then in order to go forward, right, they won't have to spend that much energy. So the forward reaction goes along much easier because the reactant already has like enough energy in itself. It just needs a teensy tiny push. So it goes up and then it goes all the way down to the product, which has less energy. So now say the product wants to go back to being the reactant. Now in this case, because the product has such low energy, in order to reach the threshold energy, it has to consume a lot of energy. So the activation energy of the backward reaction is a lot more. So from this, we can say that the total activation energy of the backward reaction is equal to the change, the difference in the enthalpies of the reactant and product plus the extra energy that we gave, Um, for the forward reaction. Now in this case, I haven't mentioned it before, I'm so sorry, the change in the enthalpy or the difference in the enthalpy between the reactants and the products is basically the difference in the like initial energies that they possess. Now if this were to be, this is for an exothermic process because when it's an exothermic process the energy of the reactant is more than the energy of the product. Now if it was an endothermic process, this is basically because the reactant has to absorb more and more energy in order to reach the threshold, after which it can go into being the product. Now, the product has, the product has a um, lower um, activation energy for the backward reaction, right? So that happens a lot faster. Following this, we come to the energy profile diagram for a two-step reaction. It goes exactly like the one for the one-step reaction, but the one thing that we need to remember here is that um, each of like the tops, the tips of the curve or something, that's basically um, telling us the energy for each um, step of the reaction, and each of the... Like, troughs are basically telling us the energy of either the reactant or the intermediate or the product so yeah the lesser activation energy something needs to reach the threshold energy the faster it's going to happen because you don't need to give it that much of a push to get things going after this we move on to the Arrhenius theory of reaction rates um the temperature coefficient mu couldn't explain why the rate doubles for every 10 degrees Celsius or tel- 10 Kelvin rise, and that is exactly what the Arrhenius' theory of reaction rates did. Arrhenius's theory of reaction rates basically told us that K is equal to AE, where E is raised to the power of the negative of the activation energy, divided by RT. Now, E to the power minus EA by R t RT, represents the fraction of the molecules with a kinetic energy greater than or equal to the activation energy right and a is the pre-exponential or the arrhenius or the frequency factor ea is the activation energy and r is the universal gas constant the units of a is equal to the units of k now why did we even need this this is because all collisions don't give us products Only the molecules with a kinetic energy greater than or equal to the activation energy are the ones that collide and give us products right so if we were to plot a graph of the fraction of molecules versus the kinetic energy possessed the area under the curve would give us the fraction of molecules right and at some point let's say let's just like draw a line on the x-axis and say that this is going to be our activation energy right so when the temperature is super high, then there are a lot of molecules that are not falling, um, that are not moving past the activation energy, right? But then we increase the temperature. So now the graph appears to flatten a bit more. And when it flattens, more of the graph starts moving um, past the activation energy point that we've like marked. And because of this, um, we can say that As the temperature increases the rate of the reaction increases and one more interesting interesting thing is when T1 went from being T to T plus 10 which is our T2 the fraction of molecules having um, a kinetic energy greater than or equal to the activation energy doubled because the area doubled right so from this we understood that the rate increases two times now if we had to go to the logarithmic form of the Arrhenius equation we end up getting log k is equal to negative ea divided by 2.303 rt plus log a if we were to plot this on a graph of log k versus 1 by t we'd get a straight line graph um, of the form y is equal to minus mx plus c, where c, the y-intercept, is log a, and the slope is minus ea, divided by 2.303r. Now for the rate constant at different temperatures. We just basically use the logarithmic form of the Arrhenius equation at T1 and T2, and then we subtract And we end up getting log K2 minus log K is equal to so and so. And at the end, our final equation is log K2 divided by K1 is equal to EA divided by 2.303R times 1 by T1 minus 1 by T2. Following this, we're almost done. Trust me, I'm just as tired as you are. We come to the effect of a catalyst on the rate of the reaction. What the catalyst does is it increases the rate of the reaction by providing an alternate path or mechanism of lowering the activation energy. So basically what it's doing is um, say you needed to have this much energy for the reaction to be carried on with like before. Right. So now what the catalyst does is it says, hey, you don't need that much energy. Let me break it down for you. I'm gonna break down this big reaction into a bunch of tinier mechanisms that make it super easy for you to go through the whole process without spending too much energy yourself or needing that much energy, right? So yeah, the activation energy decreases and the reaction happens much faster. Now, one thing to remember, or two things rather, is that catalysts do not alter delta G, Gibbs free energy, and they only catalyze spontaneous reactions, not the non-spontaneous reactions. Now, say we have to combine Arrhenius's equation and the catalyst thing. Say we have a constant temperature. Um, in the present in the absence of catalyst, k is equal to a e to the power minus e a divided by r t. In the presence of a catalyst, the activation energy becomes e minus. I mean, sorry, e a c. So k c is equal to a e to the power minus e a c divided by r t. So when it's like a constant temperature, we just divide these um, two equations, and we end up getting 2.303 log k catalyst divided by k is equal to ea minus eac divided by rt. So it's 2.303 times the log of k cat divided by k, um, which is equal to the difference in the activation energy divided by rt. If we have um, a t that keeps changing, then the, how do you say this, e-activation divided by the temperature sorry. The activation energy with the catalyst divided by the temperature with the catalyst is equal to the activation energy divided by the temperature. Just like that. After this, Finally in this chapter, gods with the collision theory of the reaction rates. Now according to the theory, reactant molecules are assumed to be hard spheres. A chemical reaction takes place due to collisions between reactant molecules. All collisions between reactant molecules will not bring about a chemical reaction. Only a few of them lead to a product. These collisions are known as effective or fruitful collisions. The number of col- per, uh, number of collisions per second per unit volume of the reaction is collision frequency. Now, what are the conditions for effective collisions? Number one, the energy factor. The colliding molecules must have an energy greater than or equal to the activation energy. And then there's the orientation factor. You have to make it so that whatever is going on, it's easy for everything to attack everything else. And yes, one more equation till we're done. The rate is equal to P times Z, AB times E to the power minus EA by RT. Ea, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, e to the power minus Ea by RT is the fraction of molecules with a kinetic energy greater than or equal to the activation energy. Z is the collision frequency, and P is the orientation or the steric factor. And oh my God, we are done.